Funambulis Podcast by Léopold Lambert. Today, Bulldozer Politics in Cold War US with Francesca Rossellorama. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Francesca Rossello-Arman, uh, who is uh, an historian of the built environment and an assistant professor in planning and preservation at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, where we are recording this interview. Uh, hello Francesca. Hello. Uh, you're also uh, the author of a book called uh, Bulldozer, uh, with very big letters, <laughs> <laughs> Demolition and Clearance of the Post-War Landscape, uh, we should say in, in the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, which I was uh, obviously very uh, interested in uh, in um, in addressing as I as I tried to write a small thing on the topic as well myself in the context of Palestine, um, and so uh, so I'm very glad we're doing this. So thank, thank you. you very much for taking the time. Uh, so your book is structured in it with, in, uh, with with three parts. Uh, and I think we'll follow a similar uh, similar logic. The first the first one very much addressed the use of the bulldozer by the U.S. Army uh, during the Second World War, in particular in the in the in the Pacific uh, in the Pacific Front. Um, and uh, and you're describing in particular this um, this uh, part of the U.S. Army called the CBs. We've been. Uh, um, We've been using extensively this um, the bulldozer. Would you would you mind telling us more about them? Sure. So the CBs are actually part of the Navy. Um, so the, the Army has Makes the sense. Corps of Engineers, which has existed for a while. But during uh, World War II, the Navy created its own comparable branch. And CBs is short for uh, Construction Battalions, so the abbreviation. And um, during the war, there was this realization that um, a group would be necessary to both build and fight. So they specifically tried to bring in um, engineers, construction workers, people with skills in operating heavy equipment, building bases, building airfields, highways in the Pacific, Pacific especially. Um, and they imported sometimes older men into the military than they would have otherwise been doing. Um, and those men joined the Seabees. Over time, they kind of tapped the supply of people who could readily staff this. So the new men who joined those battalions were trained when they, when they became Seabees. So this kind of army of construction men contributed to the war effort, but then also when the war was over, came home and found new construction opportunities at home, both construction and destruction, um, having trained in those things during the war. Um, yeah, and I think we'll we'll get to that in um, mm -hmm. in just a minute, actually, because that that will provide a, a perfect segue for the second part of the book. Um, but perhaps if we stay uh, if we stay uh, during this uh, Second World War uh, era, um, I think there's many things you're you describing, uh, both as the bulldozer used as an actual uh, weapon in, uh, in on the front, uh, as well as um, as well as various um, uh, um, various perspective on on uh, also the uh, racialized and uh, colonial politics uh, when it comes to, for example, in 1942 the the junction of the road uh, the the Alcan Highway uh, between uh, Alaska and uh, and the rest of the United States. Could you, could you tell us about that? Sure. So uh, one of the highways that 
bulldozers and other construction equipment were used um, to construct during the war was the Alcan Highway, which uh, was up um, up in Canada, and it um, never wound up being that useful. By the time it was finished, the war was over. But the process of building this um, trained a lot of men in in this work, uh, men who became active in the highway department in the post-war period in the United States. But you're referring to the actual labor of it. And um, the way that jobs were generally parsed out in the military was that uh, white um, white men in the Army got a lot of the heavy equipment training, and African-American men, more often than not, did the more manual, um, laborious work, such that when the war ended, the skills that those groups had were different, too, and translated into the kinds of jobs that those two groups had uh, in the post-war period, too. Um, but there was this ceremonial moment of the meeting of bulldozers at the, at the finishing point of the Alcan Highway, which um, actually was an African-American operator and a, and a um, Caucasian operator. But that was not representative of, of how that work actually occurred. So the racial dynamics of this are an interesting part of the story, both who gets trained in this labor and gets the you know, salary and benefits of that, and who gets displaced by bulldozing too, which is often disproportionately uh, minority residents, African Americans in particular. Uh, and in this case, probably indigenous uh, population. Oh, as absolutely. Well. And in the Pacific, that was very true um, as well. And um, I argue in the book that there's, this was somewhat of a training ground for, um, you know, make, normalizing displacement and who were the victims going to be, those who had the least power over, um, you know, land ownership and were the least well equipped to fight back uh, when this argument about the greater good precipitating displacement, well, who's going to suffer? Uh, the negative effects of that is very often uh, minorities um, and, and the less powerful in general. Mm. Um, one thing of the many things that I learned from your book is um, I was quite um, I was quite uh, struck by it is that um, Bill Levitt, uh, the founder of Levittown, about which we already talked about in this podcast series with uh, Olivia Hahn, uh, as the site, the sort of architectural site of. Uh, uh, gender reformation, uh, post-war reformation, with like this sense of domesticity, the re the reconstruction of uh, of um, uh, of a very strict separation of gender after mm-hmm. women had been uh, had been very much in the workforce during the Second World War, and and we were looking with uh, Olivia and including in the article she she wrote um, uh, later on for the Phenomenalist magazine, how from the scale of uh, of the urban scale to the very scale of uh, following Paul Preciado's research to the very scale of the of the contraceptive pill, you you would find this reformation of gender. And something I didn't know is that Bill Levitt that you describe in, in your book was a CB himself. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is very much is also this continuation of, uh, of and, and the intersection of all of those histories together. Yeah, there is a really strong uh, gender dimension, too, I think, to um, the application of the bulldozer, particularly during the war, and this construct, symbolic construction of another version of the all-American cowboy. You know, what does it mean to be this mighty patriot um, traversing the land on a bulldozer, uh, demonstrating your great power, and just... Um, these were men operating these equipment, but even the, the stories that get told about it, the kind of, um, uh, such that people who oppose some of this destruction um, lean on gendered metaphors too. The land being a feminized landscape uh, that's being plundered and raped by this machinery, uh, both the proponents and activists against 
uh, latch on to gender as a way of trying to understand what more is going on besides the physical movement of dirt and displacement of people. What's actually underlying this? Why do we celebrate these powerful movements of machines and men's? What is, what's at stake for us here beyond the physical dirt that's that's moving. Hmm. And can you tell us about Levittown specifically? Oh, sure, yeah. So uh, Bill Levitt um, talks about in his own autobiography, um, um, uh, not not autobiography, he was interviewed, and he talks about in an interview how um, World War II was really a, a virtual training ground where he talked at night in particular with um, with some of his uh, colleagues, you know, uh, fellow Seabees, uh, about uh, how could they kind of automate this process more? How can they make it faster and more efficient? Um, and and that was what he came home to do after the war. And Levitt, uh, the company, um, uh, built war housing during the war, too. So in Virginia, they actually did uh, incubate this idea of mass-produced housing that then became the norm in the post-war period. So war provided the opportunities for experimentation um, and the urgency for doing things rapidly, such that after the war, those same processes were applied in non-war conditions, uh, but still building on that expertise. Yeah, and I think we can we can get uh, right right to it actually, um, and very much staying within the um, within the the defense um, perspective. Mm -hmm. I think uh, some things that I've been fascinated as a part of American history that I've been fascinating by uh, uh, for quite a while now uh, starts with this. Um, what was recognized in 1949 as a, as a conspiracy by uh, General Motors and uh, other um, other sort of automobile uh, industries uh, buying the streetcar system of 25, 25 American cities to better dismantle them. Uh, and and even though it was legally recognized as a conspiracy, the, the amount of the fine that uh, they had to pay, which I think, if I remember correctly, was something like ten thousand mm -hmm. dollars or something like that, uh, and the way that it's been uh, later on, um, that the effect of this conspiracy was later on um, capitalized by the by the federal government, and in particular uh, the National Interstate and Defense Highway Act of 1956, signed by uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, to me has always been like something really uh, fascinating in how the entire highway system of the US landscape, something that we that is so much part of the the sort of national, uh, if not nationalist uh, imaginary, uh, is very much was very much made within the context of Cold War and with military purposes. Yeah. Uh, and the bulldozers obviously are a fundamental part of it. Aren't yeah. They? Yeah. The uh, you know the the original map for the interstate highway system originates out of World War One uh, when there was a need to um, have these truck convoys uh, traverse the country, and it took a long time, and that planted the seed for uh, we have actual military necessity for a better highway network. And if you look at the, what was realized as the interstate highway map and, and that original plan, General Pershing's map. Um, they're very much the same. Uh, so that's one point of origin. But then Eisenhower, Eisenhower himself, having served in World War II and seen the Autobahns in Europe, further nurturing the idea. And he, he actually was involved um, in World War I in some of those highway convoys. So I think you know, the fact that Eisenhower was the one to sign the act is not coincidental. He saw personally the value of this. But then wrapped up in all that Cold War rhetoric, too, of being able to empty out the cities quickly and, get, um, and, and be prepared for any sort of Cold War conflict. Uh, so um, we don't think about it as a defense system in practicality today, but it was interstate commerce and it was 
uh, military defense that were both driving these things. And what were the what was the capability to build it? Well, it came out of that uh, construction prowess, the, the equipment that could do it, that was highly trained and honed during the war, and able to execute this massive in infrastructure project. Hmm. Um, and so, in this uh, in this infrastructure, uh, I mean, maybe the way the way I, I just mentioned it was very much at a at a at a continental scale, but uh, what your book looks at looks at very carefully is at the urban scale as well. Uh, in particular, um, perhaps we can talk about first Orange County and then maybe New Haven, which are two very specific examples you're looking at in the book. Yeah, sure. So. Um it is a national story, um, which is why I, I use this term culture of clearance as kind of characterizing development in the post-war period around the country. But I touched down in a couple places that are really exemplars of putting this into practice. And so Orange County is my example for suburban development. And um, take a look at the rapid rate at which farmland was turned into space for housing. Um, and all the trees that are, that are torn down, and the mountainsides that are leveled in order to create large, empty, flat expanses for development of sameness, right? If you're building tracked housing and it's all the same, it has to all be the same, the landscapes that you're building upon. So much gets cleared down and leveled um, to do this. Um, the development of highways to service those areas, it's all intertwined. So this large clearance of everything that stood in the way to build large-scale projects. Um, at the same time, you have cities being cleared by bulldozers and, and leveled for urban renewal construction. They're two very different built forms in the end. Um, but the fundamental, you know, underlying premise is that we need to clear away, level, create a large space for new construction. So what's going on there is, is comparable in certain ways. The cities are, are tearing down the older infrastructure, buildings, um, industry, these sorts of things, and creating space for high-rises. Um, and the amount of destruction that's going on is what ties them together. Uh, so we think about the post-war period as this moment of rapid growth in construction. It's really an era of rapid de destruction to enable that. That was the, the first necessary step for the so-called progress of modernization. Um, and you're mentioning uh, hi um, high-rise, but uh, also highways, again, yes. right, as that are se segregating entire uh, cities, uh, r racially segregating. And uh, I mean, I'm thinking in particular of, of, of Baltimore mm -hmm. or Detroit, uh, even here in Philadelphia, there's probably a lot to, to be said about that. Uh, can, uh, can you maybe tell us about it? Sure, yeah. So um, what's notable about these projects is not just their large scale, but where they're located. And, and highways, as well as urban renewal, very often targeted um, you know, high-value land close to the center that was occupied by less powerful populations. Um, you mentioned Philadelphia, the Vine Street Expressway goes through Chinatown, for example, and that's not an uncommon story if you look at the Chinatowns of cities all over the Montreal. place. Montreal. Yes, yeah. it's all over North America. One of my colleagues, Dominic Vitiello, works exactly on this and this similarity that we see. Um, but the story of African Americans being displaced, I think, is one we know even, mm. even better. Um, New Orleans, lots of places have, um, have experienced this such that in, while urban renewal cleared out whole neighborhoods, highways could do that too, and they could also cut off whole neighborhoods, um, cut off access to services and the waterfront, um, so highways really dividing too. So on the one hand, they're upgrading the infrastructure. On the other hand, they're displacing populations that are not viewed as the ones that cities are trying to attract. They're trying to attract those suburban families back, those suburban businesses, and how do we clear space for them while well, we take it away? 
uh, from these populations that are less able to resist that. Uh, and that's interesting, right? Because the, the bulldozer is very much the moment of bulldozing. If we, uh, I'm not sure whether the neologism is a is an accepted one or not, but uh, uh, the bulldozing uh, operation is very much the moment of of explicit violence in that process, right? I mean, we we look at highways and uh, and uh, and we don't necessarily look at them as those instruments of uh, structural racist violence, but uh, but the bulldozer very much uh, materialized that. So I think what your book does very well is also showing how the bulldozer needs to come with an entire sort of uh, benevolent and modern modernizing imaginary that goes with it. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of uh, still talking about New Haven, the, the, the sort of Life magazine uh, operations that uh, the mayor of New Haven uh, is sort of granting himself. Can you tell us about sure, that? Sure. Yeah. So um, New Haven is an interesting case. It spent. It received more federal dollars per capita than any other city for urban renewal. So while it wasn't, you know, the biggest city, you know, places like like New York have captured our attention. Robert Moses, um, for its scale, it was doing it, you know, more se seriously than any other place. And the mayor of New Haven welcomed this. Uh, Dick Lee was the mayor, and he, uh, when Life magazine photographers came to the city, he specifically wanted to be photographed uh, knocking down a building because this was a sign of the progress. He was the city cleanup champion, as they wrote in the piece. Um, so it wasn't. It's not just about bulldozers. It's about wrecking machines and and. Um, and, and lots of different pieces of equipment that are tearing down. But he was quite happy to be photographed doing this. This was a positive thing. Um, but this changes over time. As people start to see uh, some of the damaging consequences of the demolition, that gets featured less, such that we see the highway and we're just focusing on the finished product. We're not looking at that moment of destruction. That's being covered over because that's the messy part. If we can get to the modern output, the before and the after, um, that covers over what happens in the middle. How do we get there? Who gets displaced? What happens to the environment in the middle? And this book is very much about that middle piece, between mm -hmm. the before and the after. What is the process? How do we um, endorse certain decisions? What's at stake when we do that? Um, and so I'm interested also in photographs in general that are about mm. before and after. Oh, yeah, the photographs are incredible, the documents, yeah. Yeah, and that they're, well, how do you know about this process? Mm -hmm. um, when I started the project, what are the archives going to be that will tell me about demolition? And wrecking companies don't generally leave so many paper um, archives that we're to find. You know, government records are useful in this regard. Um, but actually, the photographs that were taken of sites undergoing demolition tell us a lot about how long this process took. Um, you know, the kind of the process by which instead of tearing down all the buildings in a block, it takes a while to relocate people who are living in this building and that building. The whole thing stretches out. Um, and what does it mean for the people who are still living alongside it? So photographs have been a great resource in this project, and I was really glad uh, that the press allowed me to include so many mm -hmm. in the book. Um, and so going back to these imaginaries, this sort of very necessary imag imaginary that needs to be produced uh, to, to value the action of bulldozers, uh, the third part of your book very much addresses, uh, uh, I guess, two two main mediums that sort of does that. Uh, maybe one one with a little bit more uh, complexity than the other, but both produce like this sort of very positive imaginary. Mm -hmm. One is the children books, and the other are the like land arts and mm -hmm. uh, other sort of forms of monumental arts that requires the use of the bulldozers. Can you can you describe this third sure. part for us? Yeah. So actually, I think. I think they operate a little bit differently. Yeah, the, the children's books, yeah. um, 
when I started the project and I was looking for what would my archive be, I found many um, examples of juvenile literature, children's books, um, that were about bulldozers. And that caught my eye, you know, what, what's going on here? And they all start appearing, um, some in the 30s, but there's a real um, outgrowth of them in the post-war period. And they're generally positive about what's going on. They embrace the progress of destruction. Um, there's a book called The Amiable, Affable Bulldozer Operator, something like that, um, that has a picture of this man sitting on his machine next to a building. And you can see the the, the little placard that said the building's from the 19th century, and he's just smiling. And that's mm. kind of the nature of these books. They're celebrating the destruction and or they're just looking towards the progress of the construction. So in some cases, companies um, supported the production of these books, providing photographs and, and information, the technical side. Um, but generally, they were positive narratives uh, supporting destruction as progress. And, and so I think... How, how do these messages kind of subtly infiltrate the society? I think children's books are uh, relatively untapped, undertapped mm. um, avenue in to understanding these, these cultural messages. Um, and this continues today. We still, you know, they're good night, good night construction site, the celebration of this equipment. Mm. These books are still quite popular, although eventually sometime in the 60s and 70s, there are some um, more critical books too that talk about well what what does it mean for the young woman who's displaced from her apartment in, in you know in Manhattan uh, by urban renewal what does it mean for the environment so these start to appear too but you still have this long lineage of positive bulldozer books as I talk about them the second piece is um, so if that's kind of the everyday popular medium I wanted to um, uh, focus in on on art um, the work of Gordon Matta Clark and Robert Smithson and others Matt Clark, who cut apart buildings um, to kind of force us to look at the destruction and make this mm -hmm. the object of our uh, of our gaze versus covering that over the way the bulldozer does, um, and Robert Smithson and others um, uh, who who you know created these big voids out in the in the West in the landscape. Um, their you know their messages are are harder to figure out, but I found those to be much more um, critical and analytical and and less. Um, endorsing of this work, more um, and more asking people to stop and look and see what's going on, what they're allowing. Um, so I, I don't think that they're both um, necessarily supporting the culture of clearance. They're, they're shining a light on it and we can read it through these other media as opposed to just what's going on in the landscape. So that's what I was trying to do there mm. um, with that work. Um, and movies, uh, other media too, um, um, the way that bulldozers are portrayed in those things, the way that Caterpillar, the company Caterpillar, cares how uh, bull uh, bulldozers are portrayed in films. There's a, a Disney film that called bulldozers cats that were tearing uh, down the jungle, and um, and Caterpillar said, you can't just say that. We want more, you know, different kinds of depictions of, of our machines. Um, and, you know, these things matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe going back to Smithson, maybe yeah. uh, there's something. I mean, I I, I would agree that uh, it it is definitely not the same sort of message that it sends in uh, children books, uh, uh, sort of uh, making the bulldozer sometime a protagonist of right. their of their narrative. But I think I think in Smith Smithson's art, there's still very much a sort of uh, very strong um, will to form the environment right mm -hmm. and uh, and for better or for worse i mean i'm not even i'm mm -hmm. not even having a necessarily critical look at that but but it is it is very much still uh um 
uh, pushing bulldozers and other like I'm thinking also of the the the, the dripping asphalt uh, piece, which mm -hmm. very much has mm -hmm. this asphalt truck uh, uh, as being part of the art itself. Uh, there is still a very it's still very much capitalized on this uh, ge geo engineering uh, uh, dimension that the bulldozer carry, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think. You know, these artists, um, as I write in the book, use bulldozers as paintbrushes, right? Mm -hmm. They saw the potential of these tools to do, to create certain things, too. Um, and I think the scale at which those artists operated is significant, too, because part of what I see as significant in this moment is the large scale of construction projects and how equipment like bulldozers enables this. They're critical to, um, you know, the remaking of entire neighborhoods, these tracked developments um, in the suburbs. Um, they're critical also to making this art. So what are the possibilities that are opened up by uh, the existence of the, these technologies and how can we um, put them more front and center too, uh, which I think is what's going on in these art projects too. You immediately start to wonder how could you make this? Whether you saw it being constructed or not, you know that different kinds of equipment were involved in, in doing this. And, um, and it gets captured in the photographs of, of the art being constructed. Mm. constructed. The photographs again are important. Um, I believe it's at the Smithsonian um, in Washington, D.C. There are a lot of these kind of working photographs of, of the art, um, artworks being made. And you can see um, it was important to capture what was the equipment that was making it. It's not just, as with the construction projects, it's not just the end result that matters, it's the process. And this is really process art. Mm. Uh, and so still very much following the structure of your book, yeah. we are sort of reaching the conclusion of it and in which you you sort of show the, the sort of the boomerang effect, so mm -hmm. to speak, of uh, of all this um, production of this imaginary as this positive imaginary, and talking about various acts of resistance against bulldozer and and depictions of, of the bulldozer as a as uh, an instrument of violence of state violence in particular. I mean, and um, I don't know. I think maybe one one thing we can maybe talk about is how your sort of uh, presenting uh, the murder of Rachel Corey by an Israeli bulldozer as prophetized almost by this uh, by this priest, right, in the 70s in San Francisco. So you have this incredible picture of him uh, uh, laying down in front of a, of, a, of a bulldozer. And I have to say, I was a bit confused by the photo, whether it happened before he was killed as well by the bulldozer or after, or can you tell us? This right, right. So I, I believe uh, this particular incident took place in the Midwest. Um, so in San Francisco, uh, I have a photograph. San Francisco, sorry. Yeah, it was a, uh, the, in San Francisco, I have a photograph showing protesters standing in front of the bulldozer. Yeah. And this has always been uh, a really important... Black protesters. In yeah, black yeah. protesters yeah. in the Fillmore neighborhood mm. um, of San Francisco. And um, so the, the symbolism of standing up to the bulldozer literally is, is a familiar trope. Um, we saw this also... Um, um, with uh, the Native Americans protesting the pipeline um, uh, in, in, in Dakota. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, standing in front of the bulldozer. So symbolically, this has always been an important move. Mm -hmm. But in the case of, of the incident that you're talking about, um, the machine actually killed the man that was lying there in, in his silent protest, too. So these machines are physically dangerous to stand in front of. Um, and um, and the murder of, of uh, Rachel Corey uh, was just another example So um, of, of cases where the machine physically 
hurts people. Um, it's not just about symbolism. We saw this in World War II yeah. also, to go back to the beginning, uh, stories of uh, Japanese snipers that were literally, you know, wiped off the, the battlefield by the blade of a bulldozer. Um, so the, the violence is not just uh, metaphorical or, um, or social. It is physical. The machine is physically violent. Uh, and these particular incidents um, highlight that to us. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's really where the book uh, um, creates this this uh, this uh, cycle because indeed, I mean, you you start with those uh, really, um, I mean, those those occurrences just like you mm -hmm. describe of like bulldozers in in Okinawa or mm -hmm. other places where uh, where they would literally roll over uh, Japanese soldiers. And and this would be seen as a as a great act of, of uh, right. heroism. Was like I think the person like this one person you're describing got like all oh, the best like uh, uh, medal uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the navy and all that. And and so we um, we see a lot how um, how the again the narrative and the imaginary around this machine is really determining uh, how the event is being read. So perhaps as a as a, as a conclusion, could you could you could you maybe address uh, the current destructions that we're still uh, we're still uh, witnessing today? Because obviously uh, your book, uh, as as a historian, your book is is very historically uh, driven, but it's it's only to lead us better to the current uh, our contemporary contemporary mm -hmm. time. Um, so could we could you could you maybe offer us a conclusion uh, through this uh, more present uh, time of destruction? Sure. Um, I talk about in the book it's a culture of clearance kind of beginning with World War II and ending in around the Vietnam War. So um, really bookended by these wars. But of course, we tear down many things still today. Um, and you can look to cities like Detroit and others that are uh, even Philadelphia that are still implementing a lot of demolition of buildings. So these ideas, live on. Um, and um, it's a different moment, though, for a few reasons. Um, in the post-war period, um, this was national, the national norm. You know, hundreds of cities across the country were pursuing urban renewal and implementing the bulldozer because there was federal funding there to make it happen. Today, a few places are still doing this quite heavily. It's not the norm to, uh, what you know, developing cities. Um, the vast sums of money don't exist, uh, the problems are more particular, but it's still popular when it's affordable. And if cities like Detroit can do this in an affordable way, the promise of those green fields and the ability to rebuild anew still holds. Um, and I think it's just important to learn from this very large-scale implementation of this ideology, how do we deal with the social aspects of this? How do we right some of the inequities that come along with clearance? Um, we've seen also the places that were preserved by neglect and then have now been, you know, uh, reappreciated by people coming back to cities. So having a longer view and not just the short-term view, too. Is everyone remembering that? I don't know. Uh, but one of the points of the book is to shine a light on what we did do here and what can we learn from those things as we try to remake our cities and our suburbs and our rural landscapes today. Um, how can we do it better? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, uh, you know, that's the great objective. Yeah, uh, and sorry, I, I'm I'm adding a question to, sure. to that, but I I um, I think we we talked a bit about the way uh, structural racism is is taking place in cities through those processes, but I think this is also uh, impossible to separate from uh, systematic capitalism, mm -hmm. and I think you, you were talking about Detroit. You describing how Bank of America uh, foreclosed uh, after having foreclosed uh, hundreds and hundreds of homes. 
uh, has been uh, donating them to the city of Detroit because they didn't want to pay the property taxes, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's that shows the, the incredible cynicism that goes through all that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, could, could you just re-describe this particular uh, occurrence? In Detroit? Yeah. I mean, you, you, <laughs> you, yeah, you basically did, but, I, but it doesn't just happen in Detroit, too. We think about... Um, all the foreclosures in in the West also, um, and that these homes are just being left um, and, and given up by the banks, and um, and it's cheap uh, to tear them down and and to start over, um, and so really these. I talk a lot about culture in the book, but we can't minimize the significance of economics, and none of this would have happened. People had grand plans to demolish cities for years and years before World War II, uh, but they couldn't implement it because the financing of it didn't make sense. And these same events that propel action today uh, hinge upon economics. So as much as I'm a cultural historian, I think it's supremely important, the narratives we tell, how people get comfortable. How is it that so many people got behind the idea of urban renewal and, and destruction as progress, even people who are being displaced at the outset of the uh, process? Um, but the economic piece of it is critically important. And how do we incentivize lenders and developers such that demolition and clearance and short-sightedness aren't the end result? Mm -hmm. And uh, your book definitely focuses on the U.S., but I think uh, it will resonate for many, uh, many other people around the world. So thank you very much, Francesca, for taking thank the you. time to talk to me and to be uh, in part of this uh, Phenobolis podcast. And uh, I invite, obviously, everyone to read your book, The Bulldozer. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.